On August 7th, Habib Daoud, a Lebanese professor of history in Iran, was gunned down on the street in northern Tehran. Killed alongside him was his 27-year-old daughter, Mariam. The assassin was riding a motorbike and escaped without being identified. Reports suggest that Daoud's killing was carried out by Israeli spies. It fit the profile of those carried out by Israeli agents in Iran in previous years. Past targets, however, were mainly Iranian nuclear scientists. Daoud was a different kind of enemy to Israel. He was said to be affiliated with the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah, which is funded by Iran. At least, that was the story reported by Iranian press. Three months later, quoting intelligence officials, news reports in the United States and Saudi Arabia told a different story, in which the man Iranian authorities identified as Habib Daoud never actually existed. While the assassins were still likely to be Israeli agents, Daoud's identity was a cover. There was a strong likelihood, rather, that the man killed in Tehran on August 7th was a senior operative in one of the world's most notorious terrorist organizations one that has long claimed to be an enemy of Iran's government. The man has been identified by U.S. and Israeli officials as Abu Mohammed al-Masri, second in command at Al-Qaeda. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Suleiman Hakimi. And this week, we're looking at Iran's covert and counterintuitive relationship with Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda's big moment in the international spotlight came on September 11, 2001, when 19 of its operatives hijacked airplanes in the United States and crashed them into the World Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon in Washington. 9-11 was the biggest terrorist attack in American history and provided the impetus for the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, where Al-Qaeda's commanders were sheltering under the protection of the Taliban government. The invasion in 2001 changed the course of American and Afghan history. But it was also a pivotal moment for Afghanistan's neighbor, Iran. Throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, Iran's ruling regime felt a deep hatred for the Taliban and al-Qaeda. The two groups considered the interpretation of Islam promoted by Iran's theocratic government to be blasphemy. Al-Qaeda, in particular, has advocated a violent overthrow of modern governments throughout the Middle East, including Iran. Those were the hatreds on the surface, and they informed a lot of what happened on the ground between Iran and Afghanistan. But beneath the surface was a quiet history of courtship, which began in the 1980s, when Iran had just undergone its self-proclaimed Islamic revolution, and al-Qaeda was in its early infancy, with its leadership concentrated in Pakistan and North Africa. We spoke to Asif Mogadam, an associate professor at the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya, Israel, and a fellow at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy. So the, the relationship between Al-Qaeda and Iran began, uh, it dates back almost 30 years ago uh, at this point, and uh, it goes back to uh, uh, the Sudan. The Sudan at that, that point, uh, it's important to remember that uh, uh, the Sudan was kind of like um, um, uh, a, uh, a place, a theater where a lot of um, there were various terrorist organizations and uh, uh, militants, Islamist militants, were basically meeting. 
the Sudan saw itself as kind of like uh, a country where Shiites and Sunnis would, would come together. Um, it was, it was uh, led by a, a militant Islamist uh, regime. Hassan al-Turabi was uh, playing a very, very uh, large role. And um, yeah, so there were, it was kind of like, uh, almost like uh, uh, an adventure land for a variety of, of, of various Islamist groups, but also for other non-Islamist um, uh, terrorists. So the first contacts were essentially formed uh, in the Sudan about 30 years ago. And interestingly, uh, the initial contact was formed not so much between bin Laden and members of um, the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, but between Zawahiri. Um, Zawahiri, who of course today is, um, we believe that he still is today the, uh, the Al-Qaeda leader. Um, back then he was somebody who was in bin Laden's orbit and he was uh, an operative of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Egyptian Islamic Jihad was a terrorist group that hoped to install an Islamist government in Cairo. Ayman al-Zawahiri, one of its senior operatives, was a close friend of Osama bin Laden, who would go on to found al-Qaeda. So about 30 years ago, um, in the Sudan, uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri had gotten in touch with um, members of the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps. And um, there was a, a sense of, there was a mutual admiration, actually, between Iran and the Egyptian Islamic uh, Jihad at that point. Um, the EIJ was very fond of the Iranians because of the Islamic Revolution. Even though the Islamic Revolution was a Shiite revolution, um, the EIJ was kind of hoping that it could emulate the revolution in, in Egypt. And um, within a few years, um, Al-Qaeda, which, um, uh, which was formed officially in 1988, um, Al-Qaeda then um, started to, uh, uh, to talk with, with Iran, and there was a deal um, there was a, uh, a deal that was signed at some point between um, Al-Qaeda and Iran, and, um, and that deal basically involved um, some kind of a, a tactical cooperation. It involved um, a training, um, and we know from the 9-11 Commission report, for example, that um, Al-Qaeda sent um, members uh, of its um, organization to the Beka Valley of, of Lebanon, where it received um, training and uh, explosives and, and suicide attacks. Um, but there was also financial support. In those early days, it mattered much less that Al-Qaeda and Iran saw themselves as being opposite forces in a great ideological divide. So what's interesting is, is of course, that, that these two entities, you know, they, they have different uh, uh, Islamic uh, streams. Um, Iran is, of course, a majority, a Shiite majority state, and Al-Qaeda is a, is a Sunni militant uh, organization. And so one would, one would believe that... Um, that they would be incompatible, that there would be no cooperation between these two actors. We know at this point um, that um, the Iranians and Al-Qaeda have had a, a tactical relationship um, for the better part of the last uh, three decades. But the relationship between Iran and Al-Qaeda was still complicated, even more so when Afghanistan's Taliban government gave Al-Qaeda a base from which to operate, right next door to Iran. In 1998, when the Taliban massacred 10 Iranian officials and a journalist at Iran's consulate in the Afghan city of Mazar-e-Sharif, Iran deployed 200,000 soldiers on its eastern border, preparing to invade Afghanistan. Although it didn't go ahead with the invasion, Iran spent the next three years funding Afghanistan's northern alliance with the hope of overthrowing the Taliban and seeing al-Qaeda driven out of its immediate backyard. We spoke to Alex Vatankar, director of the Iran program at the Middle East Institute in Washington. 
if you look at their history, going back to when the Al-Qaeda uh, emerged, if you will, in Afghanistan, uh, in terms of having a uh, physical presence close to Iran, the Iranians and Al-Qaeda did, uh, you know, um, butt heads, if you will. Uh, there's no denying that. Um, there have been a number of instances where uh, Iranian diplomats that had been kidnapped in places like Pakistan and in Yemen were exchanged in return for Al-Qaeda members. If you consider Iran as a country with 10% of its population being Sunni, uh, that's about 8 million people. The last thing they want is an extreme organization like, uh, like Al-Qaeda to come in and basically uh, incite um, pockets of Iranian um, minority Sunnis. In its growing anger towards al-Qaeda's relationship with the Taliban in Afghanistan, Iran found itself unexpectedly allied with the United States. The U.S. and Iran had had a deeply hostile relationship for more than 30 years, but in Afghanistan, they were allies of convenience. The U.S. invasion of Afghanistan might have been, for a brief moment, good news for Tehran. Iranian authorities hedged, however, on the possibility that it might not be. Recalling the usefulness of their past contacts with al-Qaeda and other countries, they tolerated some of the group's operatives crossing the Iranian border, as Asif Mogadam explains. We know that um, many dozens, perhaps even hundreds of jihadis were able uh, to find shelter, at least in the short term, uh, in Iran. So after the 9-11 attacks, after the um, Americans invaded Afghanistan, uh, many uh, jihadis, both members of al-Qaeda and, and, and non-members, um, m- most of them fled to Pakistan, but a number of jihadis also went to Iran. There were basically two waves um, of when, in which uh, jihadis uh, came to Iran. The first wave was immediately after the 9-11 attacks. Whatever positive view of the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan Iran might have had changed when, just months later, U.S. President George W. Bush famously declared Tehran to be a member of the Axis of Evil. For Iran, it was a defining moment in which the U.S. presence in Afghanistan became an immediate threat. Alex Vatanka explains the sudden shift in the mood. They they had a terrible start in the 1990s because the Iranians literally went to war with Taliban, which in turn was uh, heavily supported um, and assisted by al-Qaeda in the 1990s. Uh, That relationship went from one of almost being on uh, war footing to where, you know, in 2002, George W. Bush declared Iran as axis of evil, and the Iranians suddenly had to focus on the one most important thing that mattered to them, which was to prevent an American attack or invasion of Iran, the way they witnessed happen in Afghanistan late 2001 and by March 2003 in Iraq. So if you suddenly go from being concerned about al-Qaeda because their theology is, is something you resent, or they make me, perhaps because they're supporting this ragtag army of the Taliban, which they did in the 1990s, to saying, actually, they don't matter. Instead of looking at them as an enemy, I should consider them as a potential pawn in my uh, regional struggle against the United States. If allies of convenience could once again become enemies, then other enemies could once again become allies of convenience. 
This was the start of a more hands-on return to Iran's relationship with al-Qaeda, this time to use it as a weapon against the United States in the region. As Asif Mogadam explains, it also marked the influx of even more al-Qaeda members into Iran. Uh, and then a second wave of um, jihadis arrived in Iran in, uh, in 2002, uh, shortly after George W. Bush gave his um, infamous um, axis of, of evil speech. And so um, Iran expelled most of the jihadis. However, it, it, it kept a number of al-Qaeda um, senior operatives actually in Iran. And this has been a really, really interesting kind of relationship. This cooperation has been really interesting because again, I mean, these two are basically enemies, yet at the same time, the Iranians were, were willing to accept the most, you know, some of the most senior members of al-Qaeda. Um, and initially these members were able to roam very freely in Iran. So for the first you know, year or two, until about 2003, people like um, Saif al-Adil um, or um, Abu Muhammad al-Mazri, um, who was recently uh, killed, um, they were people who were able to roam very freely uh, in Iran. By 2003, Iran realized that if it was going to harbor so many members of an enemy terrorist group on its soil, it would need to find a way to control them. And it was only in around 2003 when Iran decided that it was actually going to um, put most of the um, al-Qaeda members in detention. Um, and so the, uh, the nature of the relationship really kind of changed um, after that, and these uh, members of al-Qaeda were held in a form of, uh, of house arrest. So what was Iran hoping to achieve by having members of al-Qaeda at its disposal? Most strategic partnerships are kind of very, um, uh, they have their ups and downs, um, depending on uh, depending on how these interests are, are shifting. And so we've seen this relationship between Al-Qaeda and Iran also be um, very uh, inconsistent, um, very unpredictable. They had highs and lows. And uh, there were times when um, the Iranians, um, you know, when they wanted to, to be nicer to the Al-Qaeda operatives and they, they released some of them. And there were times when, uh, when the Al-Qaeda operatives were... Um, were uh, 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 kept under, under worse conditions. I think the main idea in this cooperation is that for, for Iran, Iran basically um, uh, is able to use uh, these Al-Qaeda operatives as, as, as a card, right? Um, it has a card. It can use the Al-Qaeda operatives at the same time as uh, a deterrent, right? It can basically threaten um, other parties, especially the United States, for example, do as we please or else we can unleash Al-Qaeda on you on the one hand. Uh, and um, uh, on the other hand, um, Al -Qaeda, uh, Iran can also hold these operatives um, as, a sort of, as a sort of um, uh, insurance policy for itself um, because uh, one, of the, one of the issues that Iran can guarantee by having uh, a senior uh, management council of Al-Qaeda in, in Iran is that this Al-Qaeda group is not going to attack Iran. Um, so keeping these um, Al-Qaeda members is an insurance policy for Iran that um, Iran is not going to be attacked by Al-Qaeda. And on the other hand, it, it, it can hold this uh, as, a, as a card um, to use in order to achieve its geostrategic objectives. And it's, of course, a relationship that has been marked by very, very deep and mutual uh, distrust. Um, and um, so this is why I think that this, this relationship is really best seen as a, as a tactical cooperation and not a strategic uh, uh, cooperation. Um, I think one, one additional example for, that shows the, the extreme level of distrust between the parties is that um, 
uh, Osama bin Laden has been uh, on the record. Basically, we you know, from from letters that the Americans were able to uh, to seize from his hideout in Abbottabad, Pakistan, he has been basically saying that he was worried about the Iranians um, placing um, chips, you know, tiny chips in the bodies of of jihadis that were released uh, from Iran. He has been warning, for example, um, uh, his wife. Uh, not to go to the dentist if she can in Iran, and if she, you know, um, if you know, and, and, and to make sure that the Iranians are not implanting any chips in her in her teeth. So it's just amazing to see the level of of distrust between the two parties. The distrust has been made worse by more open clashes between Iran and Al Qaeda in Syria, where the two have found themselves facing one another on the battlefield. Iran supports the regime of President Bashar al-Assad and al-Qaeda-affiliated groups have been trying to overthrow him. In spite of all this long and complicated history, and all of this distrust, suspicions remain that senior al-Qaeda officials are still in Iran. This brings us back to the question of Mohammed al-Masri, the senior al-Qaeda official allegedly assassinated in Tehran on August 7th. Are the reports to be believed? Was someone that high up in the echelons of al-Qaeda leadership really walking Iran's streets? Unwatched and vulnerable to assassination. I think that the uh, I think that the reports of his of his of the recent death of uh, Abu Muhammad al Mazri are are pretty uh, pretty credible. First of all, initially it was reported that um, the person and and the daughter who were assassinated were members of of Hezbollah, but that was never really confirmed. And uh, and investigations showed that there was never really a Hezbollah operative by the name that was um, that was given, but that instead this was a, a, an alias. The name that was given was an, was an alias for Abu Muhammad al-Masri. Well, I think that the Americans had been uh, stepping up uh, attempts to assassinate al-Qaeda leaders in recent years, um, including in Iran. I think that also the idea that this was kind of like a joint American-Israeli operation also sounds pretty credible to myself. I mean, we, we know that, that the intelligence cooperation between uh, the United States and Israel is very, very good. They have done this before. And it's also important to remember that both the Americans and the Israelis actually have an axe to grind with Abu Muhammad al-Masri. So we know that Abu Muhammad al-Masri, of course, was responsible for the uh, 1998 attacks on the U.S. embassies in Kenent and uh, Tanzania. Uh, and he had been on the FBI's most wanted list ever since. But what is a bit lesser known is that uh, the same Abu Muhammad al-Masri was also responsible um, or is held responsible for the um, attack uh, against an Israeli-owned hotel in Mombasa, in Kenya, as well as uh, an attempt uh, to bring down an Israeli uh, charter airliner using a, a handheld device. And so the Israelis also had an axe to grind with him. And so this idea of cooperation to take out this one person, especially um, as the attack came uh, 22 years to the date of the U.S. embassy attacks, it, it strikes me as, as quite um, believable, incredible. So Abu Muhammad al-Masri, um, uh, he appears to have been uh, still quite involved in al-Qaeda's, uh, so he was a member of the al-Qaeda's uh, management council. The management council in Iran was an additional council. Al-Qaeda always had a, a one management council um, in the Pakistani uh, region. However, you know, after 9-11, when a number of senior operatives moved to Iran, the leadership of al-Qaeda in Pakistan decided that it wanted to, to erect another management council, which was uh, supposed to provide strategic support to the Pakistan-based uh, uh, council. So Abu, Abu Muhammad al-Masri, he, uh, he played a very, very important role. He was one of the early uh, members of Al-Qaeda. He was actually listed number seven in the founding documents of Al-Qaeda. So he was the number 
the, the seventh person to join basically the Al Qaeda organization. So he's one of the uh, one of the old guards. According to reports, you know, he was still involved, played a, a role in, in the facilitation um, of Al-Qaeda operatives in the arrival. He played a role in uh, recommendations of Al-Qaeda members to be released. Um, he himself apparently was released in 2015 from a sort of house arrest as a result of, uh, uh, of a deal between Iran and Al-Qaeda. However, he was not able to leave Iran. And so... So in recent years, he was he was discussed as uh, as as the possible number two uh, to Ayman al Zawahiri. What would Al Masri's assassination mean for Al Qaeda? Uh, and so his his assassination really comes as a very very heavy uh, blow to the group. Um, and um, you know, at a time when there are also rumors that Ayman al Zawahiri uh, himself uh, might have died from natural causes in Pakistan. Um, I think currently the uh, the Al Qaeda leadership is uh, uh, is in, in quite dire straits. Today, Al Qaeda's reach is no longer as strong as it was two decades ago, but there are other extremist threats filling that void. The regime in Tehran seeks legitimacy at home by claiming to be the protector of Muslims against extremist groups such as ISIS. It has lionized Qasem Soleimani the former leader of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps who was killed by a U.S. drone strike in January as the symbol of that supposed effort. In spite of his work to support the dictatorship of Bashar al-Assad in Syria and Iranian meddling in Iraq, Soleimani was responsible for several operations against ISIS in those countries. But ISIS has its roots in al-Qaeda, and both groups continue to plan attacks against Iran's neighboring states namely Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, and beyond. Al-Qaeda, moreover, is weak, but it's not dead. While Iran's government has avoided having to explain its support for the terrorist group to its citizens simply by dismissing it as Western propaganda, there are deeper questions it will have to answer. One is what will happen if it ever loses its tight control over Al-Qaeda and its networks in Iran. I think Iran is definitely playing uh, with fire by promoting uh, jihadi groups on its soil. I think the Iranians have also been very, very careful uh, not to allow jihadi operatives uh, to rear its head too much. Um, so we know, for example, that in around 2003, when reports came up that Al-Qaeda members were involved in the attack against the Western housing complex in Riyadh, it was after these reports when the Iranians clamped down on the on jihadis and when they, when they expelled more Al-Qaeda members on the one hand and um, placed uh, remaining Al-Qaeda members under, under house arrest. So the Iranians will only let Al-Qaeda strengthen so much. They, they keep close tabs on them. If they will sense any threat from these Al-Qaeda members, then they will um, either expel them or they will lock them up. And so the Iranians are certainly very, very uh, uh, careful about that. As many other countries in the Middle East have learned, when it comes to Al-Qaeda, there is good reason to be. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines, I'm your host, Suleiman Hakimi. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit the subscribe button and leave a comment. We would really appreciate it. Thanks this week to our guests, Asif Mogadam and Alex Vatankar. This week's episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. <laughs>